I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Attorney General Lynn Fitch talks abortion ahead of an enormously consequential Supreme Court battle. Then the University of Mississippi Medical Center activates a COVID-19 vaccine mandate for staff. Plus, it's been one year since the state passed landmark anti-human trafficking legislation. And why deer in Mississippi are dropping dead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban is slated to face the Supreme Court later this year. State Attorney General Lynn Fitch says she's prepared to vigorously defend the law, which abortion rights supporters say violates women's bodily autonomy. Desiree Fraser caught up with the Attorney General yesterday. December the 1st is our oral argument for the United States Supreme Court. We're excited about it. It gives us an opportunity to talk to the court about why Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood is not the case of the day and we should be taking on the Dobbs case because it's an opportunity to talk about the sanctity of life, protecting children, protecting women, and the integrity of the medical profession. You've also talked about abortion hurts families and that having the child is beneficial. Tell us about that. Well, these are precious children that need to have potential to live their lives. And now women, 50 years later, we have different choices. You know, back then things were different. You know, women were different, men were different, the workplace was different, certainly medical technology was different. And now you don't have to forego your children to to move forward with your career. We have a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court. As you move forward in this, what are your expectations? Well, my expectations are we do have an excellent court that will be hearing our our argument. Uh, we, We believe that they're going to take action because these cases have percolated for a long time. And so when we filed for cert last year and was granted in May, we believe the court wants to take some action. Ultimately, you want to see Roe v. Wade overturned? 
I do. I'd like to see Roe v. Wade overturned because I think it is not applicable. I think the viability line is so fuzzy right now. Every court has their own determination. And it's actually, this is a rule of law question. This is about returning the rule of law to the states. The states should all be able to make their own decisions. Um, that's why you elect your legislators and your governors. When you have rule of law issues, they are the ones that enact them. And how do you change that? If you don't like it, then you change it at the ballot box. Um, equal pay. The Senate Labor, Labor Committee has been holding hearings about that. You've been instrumental in bringing that issue forward. Your thoughts on getting a bill passed next year? I'm excited. This is the time. You know, it's 2021. We're the only state in the country without an equal pay law. It's time to signify to our women that you are important. You're a part of the tapestry of the workforce of Mississippi. We value you just like we do everybody. This is a fairness issue. It's not a Republican. It's not a Democratic. It's a fairness issue. How do we empower women? We certainly want those women to stay here and be a part of our, our wonderful state. But how do we keep those, those graduates staying here? How do we empower the women that are already here? How do we upskill them? Because the reality is, right now, we've got a 27% pay gap in Mississippi. The national average is 19%. Think about the dollars that would flow into our economy if women were paid equally. Uh, it'd be $6 billion a year. And who does that uplift and empower? Their children. Their children. So there are so many great things that should happen when equal pay comes into place. Thank you, Attorney General Fitch. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Coming up, it's been one year since the state passed major legislation to combat human trafficking. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. This week marks one year since the passage of Mississippi House Bill 1559, which beefed up resources to combat human trafficking in the state. Sandy Middleton is executive director of the Center for Violence Prevention, which is a local nonprofit that supports trafficking victims. She speaks with Desiree Frazier. You know, it's it's just encouraging primarily to victims out there when they hear that this effort is here and that there's actually hope and help available to them, it's, it's huge for them. We hear cases occasionally about young people trafficking other young people or gangs trafficking young women. What, is, what are your thoughts about even trying to tackle that issue? Well, and that's one of the things about it that makes it so difficult is that anybody can be a victim of human trafficking. Any, it crosses all, all barriers and all categories. And, and, but then on top of that, anybody can also be a trafficker. So, I mean, we've seen cases where young girls will recruit other young girls and they'll run away and, and get into the life of trafficking. And, of course, it happens with, with the gangs. Uh, it happens a lot of other different ways as well. So, it, And that's one of the reasons the investigators are so important is because through all of our technology that we have today, they really can start to, to make a difference when it comes to identifying the crimes and helping the victims. So it, it's, a, it's a long road, there's no doubt, and it's here. It's prolific here, and we just have got our work cut out for us. Moving forward... What are your goals? What things would you like to see put in place to attack it further? 
Well, one of the main things we need that we don't have is a shelter and a law and a program for minor victims. We don't have anywhere for our kids to go to be able to receive those specialized care, the specialized treatment that they need to recover. And so that that's something that is urgent that we need to take care of. And when you say kids, what ages are you talking? I'm talking about minors under 18. And, and you know, most of, most of those people that we come into contact with, those minors, are generally around the ages of 14, 15, 16. And there's just... They don't fit in a an adult program because obviously they're children, they're kids, they're teenagers, and so they have different needs. And so we do need that long-term specialized program for them. Thank you so much. You bet, honey. Thank you. Coming up, a vaccine mandate for UMMC staff goes into effect. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A COVID-19 vaccination mandate for University of Mississippi Medical Center employees goes into effect today. The move comes amidst ongoing spread of the Delta variant of the coronavirus in the state. It also exposes the hospital, which is Mississippi's largest, to the risk of staff defections. Dr. Jerry Wyland is the president of the Mississippi State Medical Association. She speaks with Kobe Vance. Nobody wants a mandate. Nobody wants a mandate. But... From my point of view, there are you, you really can't work at a medical facility without proving your immunity or your vaccination to other things. I mean, hepatitis B, I mean, I can name a whole list of things. You have to be up to date on a whole lot of things to work in a healthcare environment. We know that this there, there has been hesitancy because this was under uh, emergency use authorization, but that's coming off. That was just a matter of, you know, the tests have been done, the the studies have been done. They had huge number of people that participated in these studies. It takes time to present the data and for the FDA to review it and give final approval. Again, having said you don't want to have any mandates, I I find it very hard to believe that someone working in the healthcare industry would not want to vaccinate themselves for their protection and actually more importantly for the protection of their patients especially in pediatrics you know as of right this moment i cannot give a vaccine for covid to anyone less than age 12 there is more than my more than half of my uh, population are less than age 12 you know that's a huge number of people and even if they approve it for less than age 5 there's still a lot of babies. I mean, I diagnosed COVID in a seven-month-old in the last week, and, you know, uh, and then somebody less than age two just the other day. I mean, we're seeing it in people who, in children, who can only be protected by every one of us going ahead and getting vaccinated. And I mean, every one of us, definitely in the healthcare profession, but also just out in the general public. You mentioned pediatrics. I did want to get your reaction to the Department of Health announcing two more deaths among pediatric uh, Mississippians. We're s- it's terrible. I mean, it, it, it's terrible. The look in the the look in the eyes of my moms and parents when I tell them that their child has COVID and I can't do anything for them except treat them symptomatically. I have 
no antibodies. I, I mean, you know, monoclonal antibodies are not available, less than age 12 and 88 pounds. The, there's an antiviral remdesivir, but that really has to be given in a hospital setting. I have nothing. I have nothing to give them. The look on their faces is, is just the way I feel. I, I don't I mean you just feel a little helpless. So we have something that we can, we as Mississippians can make a difference by getting a vaccine. Yes, we can do other things. We can social distance. We can wear a mask. We can do everything. But we're not going to get out of this without vaccination. And I would like to tell you just, I, I've been practicing, I've been, I graduated from medical school 40 years ago. I personally have never seen a case of polio. That wasn't because people did social distancing, that sort of thing. That's because people got vaccinated. There's another disease called haemophilus influenza that in children less than age six used to cause epiglottitis, which is swelling of the, the airway, and meningitis. In Mississippi, I have not seen a case in almost 30 years because of vaccines. This is what we need to do. Going back to vaccination in hospitals, have you been talking with other doctors around the state, and what are they saying about the possibility of more mandates in other hospitals? I know that there may be some hesitancy. To be honest with you, there may be some hesitancy in other hospitals because they're, they're so short-staffed now that they may feel that they, in making a mandate may make them more short-handed. You may remember, I don't know where in northern New York State, they had to temporarily shut down labor and delivery because the nurses wouldn't get vaccinated. They didn't have personnel. So I know that some of your smaller hospitals do worry about that. Again, I do applaud the university for making that move. And I think other hospitals may do that as everything, everything comes off emergency use authorization. As far as physicians go, the AMA did a study, 97% of all practicing physicians in the United States have been vaccinated. I mean, so Talking to physicians, I, I don't even know anybody that isn't vaccinated, and uh, I'm not likely to run into anybody that, is, that isn't vaccinated. I mean, we just do it because we know it, it protects us and it protects our patients. This week, Dr. Dan Edney told Supertalk that Mississippi leads the nation among black residents getting vaccinated. Um, what are your thoughts on Mississippi having this uh, jump in vaccines compared to other parts of the nation? I think it's fantastic. I'm proud of Mississippians for doing this. This has been hard work from from the religious section sectors, from a lot of your city and county leaders. I mean, this has just been great. This is just just great news. I mean, I'm proud of us. What do you think has set Mississippi ahead in that regard? Again, some I really know early on there was a there was a push from the churches and those organizations to kind of overcome the fear and go ahead and get vaccinated. We also do know that that a lot of our African American population have the underlying health issues that make them more susceptible to this virus and and perhaps they just realize they are more susceptible and have the good sense to go get their vaccine. Dr. Wyland, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with Mississippians right now? No, I just sound like a broken record, but let's go get vaccinated. Let's not do it because somebody's making us do it. Let's do it because it's the right thing to do. Dr. Jerry Wyland is president of the Mississippi State Medical Association and as a pediatrician in Vicksburg. Dr. Wyland, thank you for talking with us today. Thanks. Coming up, why deer in Mississippi are dropping dead. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks is experiencing an increase in reports of dead deer throughout the state. Experts suspect that's the result of an outbreak of a disease commonly known as blue tongue. Steve Damaris is the Taylor Chair in Applied Big Game Research and Instruction at Mississippi State University. He speaks with Rob Lane. Well, this time of year we typically see a disease called hemorrhagic disease or also known as blue tongue uh, late summer early fall and it's a, a virus disease viral disease that's transmitted by a biting midge a small flying biting insect and periodically or every several years every four or five years there's going to be a fairly significant outbreak in some area of Mississippi and sometimes large areas of Mississippi and throughout the southeast and and even up into the central and and reaching up into the northern United States, this disease exists. And one of the uh, symptoms or signs of of this disease is a high fever. And so deer tend to want to drink a lot of water and also just lay around and and literally get in the water to help cool their body off. Those that die from it, their bodies will be near water holes, which are more apt to be found by hunters when they start going out into the early fall looking for hunting opportunities and starting to scout deer and plant food plots and things like that. So that's why we tend to have reports of dead deer found at water holes. And if you hear that during the summer, Late summer or early fall, it's almost always going to be hemorrhagic disease, which is what we're seeing this year. And to be clear, this does not transmit to humans? There's no knowledge of of any transmission. And by the time hunting season rolls along, uh, most of the deer will have recovered from it. And and oftentimes during the hunting season, we see in the, the hooves of harvested deer, there's some disruption of the growth of the hoof. And and so that's an indication that that animal was sick the previous summer, recovered, and is now doing fine. But you can see that damage to the hoof. And that ties back to that high fever that they experienced. The high fever disrupts the growth of the hoof. If a hunter kills a deer and the carcass shows signs of illness, what should he or she do? How can he or she evaluate if it's safe to eat, etc.? Most diseases that deer are going to be associated with are not a problem and not a human health concern. You know, one of the common things that we hear about hunters shoot, uh, harvest a deer that has like uh, large warts on their on their body, outside of their body, and and that's a something that only affects the skin. It's like similar to the warts that humans can get. It doesn't affect the meat at all. Um, most of the normal parasites and diseases that deer have are at such low levels in their bodies that eating the meat is not a concern at all. The only 
disease currently where it's recommended not to eat the meat from an infected animal is chronic wasting disease. And so that's why we support or suggest that hunters get their animals tested after they harvest them before they start eating the venison, particularly if they're in a CWD management zone, which is in several counties in North Mississippi and then down around Issaquena County down near Vicksburg. If you're not a deer hunter, if you your lifestyle does not lend such that you're seeing deer and interacting with deer on a frequent basis, is this something that you really need to worry about? Well, anytime you see a an obviously sick deer, and, and a lot of people, they don't hunt necessarily, but they live in a kind of that urban, suburban, rural interface. And so oftentimes people have deer in and around their, their neighborhoods or in their backyards. And so if you see a an obviously sick deer that doesn't respond normally, so, you know, it's acting, you know, its head is droopy, its ears are droopy, it's not running away from you in, in a normal, enthusiastic way that deer tend to bound away from you when they're feeling good. If you see a deer like that, it's probably a good idea to go ahead and call the, the local conservation officer. Most counties have a conservation officer, or you could call, uh, call the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks at their Jackson office and, and report that you see a sick deer. We have some other diseases that cause similar signs in that the deer uh, lose their fear of humans and, and they don't bound away and, and things like that uh, that the agency wants to hear about if if, if people see a sick deer. So... And people reporting sick deers, how the agency learns about uh, you know these outbreaks when they do happen. Anything else you would like to add either about this disease or about the upcoming deer season or anything having to do with wildlife in general? Well, wildlife diseases under normal circumstances are not something that are, will be a, a particularly harmful to a deer population in, in a significant way. Wildlife are adapted to live with low levels of disease, provided the quality habitat, and not too many animals on the landscape. And so as wildlife professionals, we promote the proper management of habitat and the deer population so that they're in harmony together. And in those cases, disease will not be a problem. What I say is if, if you're at all interested in hunting white-tailed deer, Get after it. Have a great fall and winter. Harvest as many animals as you want to eat the venison from and share that venison with those that maybe don't hunt. And, and let everybody enjoy this wonderful wildlife resource and enjoy a healthy meat source and uh, say good hunting. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.